Tonight is February 16th, and uh, we will be covering John 8, so you feel free to open your Bibles to John 8. Tonight, uh, the title in John 8 is going to be Free from Accusation. As much as I'm excited about this PowerPoint, it's not totally complete, so... uh, Where it's not, I will have you fill in some notes if you take notes. Um, Wow. The primary text that we're going to go over starts in John 8, and we're probably going to cover the first 12 verses tonight. Okay? So as we talk about John 8, it's really important that you don't divorce it from John 7. One of the problems with the chapters is that we move to a new chapter, sometimes we think we move to a next thought. And uh, that, that's not necessarily the case. Do you all remember what John 7, what big feast was contained in John 7? It was the Feast of Tabernacles. When we had Jesus stand up and say, If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. It was on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's really important as we get into John that you look at the Jewish setting. As you think about this Feast of Tabernacles... Remember that there are seven days and then the seven days of sacrifice and on the eighth day, something new, something special happened. This is the day that Jesus stood up and announced Himself, okay? Um, The Jewish setting is very important for a couple reasons. One is there's a very spiritual lesson that is involved in the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, there are a lot of natural lessons to the nation of Israel and there are a lot of very spiritual precepts contained in it What you see on the screen there says the spiritual lesson of the feast was that the Jews would tabernacle in temporary dwellings until a time of the second great harvest when the trumpets will have already blown, the nation's sin has already been atoned for, and divine substance would be poured into them and they would be permanently glorified. Do you all remember on the eighth day we have a golden vessel? They're singing Isaiah 12 about the wells of salvation and the water as it started to be poured into 12 earthen vessels. Jesus stood up and erupted the feast and said, If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. That's the setting that we begin John 8 in. That has all just happened. Now, something that's interesting about that is John 8, when we begin it, is going to tell us where Jesus is going from and to. And I put a picture in this slide of the Mount of Olives, and this is a different view of the Mount of Olives than we normally get. This painting over here is another one. But what's important about the Mount of Olives is, above all else in the Bible, this is the one place that we know that the resurrection begins. Because the angels said that just as Jesus ascended from this spot, He would return to this spot. And at His return, the resurrection occurs. So... When you see this picture, think about this is where the resurrection is going to occur. And what can you see in the distance? This is the eastern gate of, uh, of the city of Jerusalem. And if you could look straight through that eastern gate that's now blocked up, you would see the temple. And I'm going to show you some slides of the temple here in just a minute. By the way, Isaiah 12 is what they were singing. And Isaiah 12 is all about the well of salvation. And Jesus' name means Yahweh's salvation. So when he stands up and they're singing about drawing water with joy from the wells of salvation, and he stands up and says, if you're thirsty, drink of me, he's calling himself what his name is. I am Yahweh's means of salvation. 
Some of this is just recap from John 7, but if you don't understand it, what I'm going to teach tonight won't make sense. So that brings us to John 8, beginning in the first verse. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives at dawn and appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, there's a reason that Jesus retired in the evening outside of the city and then reappeared in the temple courts to teach them. And one of the things that you're going to see as we do this is that this place where Jesus appeared to teach them, He's going to make a couple really powerful statements that have to do with that feast. And they're found in John 8, 1 and 2, and then later in John uh, 8, verse 12. So I'm going to try to remember to come back to that at the end. But as Jesus appears at this Mount of Olives, as He appears in the courts of the temple and He begins teaching, there are some people that found fault with Him. And uh, verse 3 tells us who they are. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And then we go on to some other things. I'll read that again in a minute. These people have found fault with Jesus. Do you remember why from John 7, given what I've just said, they have found fault with Him? They found fault because He's announcing Himself. I mean, He's proclaiming Himself as Yahweh's only means of salvation. That was infuriating to them. When He stood up and said what He said on the last and greatest day of the feast, they were upset. They had a whole argument about His testimony not being valid because He's testifying on His own behalf. And He said, no, my testimony is valid because the Father testifies for me. And what I'm saying is right. You need to stop judging by mere appearances. Do you all remember that whole ordeal? So now they've regrouped. They've come and they have found Him in the temple courts. Now, what you don't know from this passage, and I alluded to in the last message, but I hope to drive home tonight, is something is occurring at this very time. It says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, then made her stand before the group and said to Jesus. So we've got the Pharisees here, we've got a woman and in the background, but what time of day is it? What did John 8, 1 and 8, 2 say? It's at dawn. They did something at dawn. And they did this especially the day after Tabernacles was concluded. They had these big golden, uh, not lampstands, but columns, pillars of fire right in front of the temple in the court where everybody could see. And this was to symbolize, to remind the Israelites about the time in the desert. They looked at a pillar of fire at night for their leading. Where do I go? What do I do? When that pillar moved, they moved. During the day, they saw it as a cloud. Uh, maybe like a big mushroom cloud, some big fiery cloud in the sky, and they followed it. And what they were taught by that was, when God says move, I move. Whatever direction He says to go, I'm to go. We're nomadic people like aliens in a foreign land. That's, that's how that was to teach them. Now Jesus is standing in the temple courts. People are there to find fault with Him. They're upset with Him because of what He said in the feast. And behind Him are these columns. And Jesus, it's dawn. And at dawn, they would extinguish these columns. When they, I'm going to go ahead and skip to verse 12 real quick so you'll get this and we'll move on. What happens after Jesus has this episode with them is Jesus makes this announcement. You should never see this announcement in the same light as you used to. It says, When Jesus spoke again to the people, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. 
He was standing in the place at the time that they were extinguishing the lights that represented what they followed in the desert all of those years. And he's announcing himself, I am the light of the world. You don't want to walk in darkness, you follow me. Essentially the same thing that he did in the feast when he said, oh, that's salvation, you need to drink of me. Now he's saying, you've learned to follow those things, now you need to follow me. You can imagine this upset the Pharisees. Okay, This upset the teachers of the law because they were not ready to embrace Him. In John 7, we just had an event where they said, none of us have embraced Him, have we? And Nicodemus is sitting back there kind of scared, wondering whether he should say anything. So now we've got this woman. Says the, this is John 8, 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman, women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. We can learn from what they did. There's a couple points here. They said she was caught in the act. Well, if she's caught in the act, where's the man? How can you be in adultery and not have a man there with this woman? Okay, that's interesting. Secondly, they said, the law says. The law did have some things to say about adultery. We'll explore that. And then last is this profound statement. It says, they were using the question as a trap in order of having a basis for accusing who? Jesus. Boy, that's profound. Watch this. Leviticus 20.10 says that if you find somebody caught in adultery, if a man lays with his neighbor's wife, you bring both the man and the woman and put them to death. So number one, when they say they caught somebody in the act of adultery, they're breaking the law themselves by not bringing them both. Number two, the law did say that you must put her to death, but it also said he must die. So when they quote the law, are they quoting all of it? They're quoting half-truths. Lastly, this whole scenario is not at all about the woman. They're doing this to have a basis to accuse him. Well, that's really interesting. Here's a pattern that you see. When uh, this idea of caught in the act and the law says and a basis for accusation, there is an accuser. There always has been an accuser. His title is the accuser or the opposition. The accuser always wants to catch in the act, but he is not concerned with justice. See, there's a difference between being a prosecuting attorney. I want to prosecute Matthew because he did something wrong and I don't want him to hurt anybody else and I'm concerned with justice. Is what they did concerned with justice? If they had been concerned with justice, they would have done what Leviticus 20 verse 10 said and they would have brought the man too. So the accuser's pattern has to do with I am going to accuse, but it has nothing to do with justice. And in his actions, his motives are revealed. And you can learn from this. He always deals in half-truths. Do you remember with Eve? He didn't tell Eve anything that wasn't true in the beginning. He just told her things that were partly true. Oh, when you eat that, you're, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God. You're going to know the difference between good and evil. Was that true? Yeah. Yes. But it was also true that she would eventually die. Here they come and they present to Jesus a half-truth. You know, The law says she's got to be put to death. Yes, and the law also said he must be put to death. 
meaning whoever she was in bed with. I've often wondered if it was one of them. You know, I don't know. But his motive had nothing to do with her. Here's something that will free you. And you'll see me repeat this. I hope it's somewhat repetitious as we go through it so you'll remember it. There's a pattern in the way that the enemy deals. He always deals an accusation without caring about justice. He deals his method of delivery has to do with half-truths. But here's the important thing. It's never about you. This has nothing to do with his desire for you. People think, wow, I must be really important to the enemy for him to attack me like this. Don't be so self-centered. It has nothing to do with you. Why did these accusers accuse this woman? Because they wanted to have a reason to accuse Jesus. The only reason the devil ever brings accusation against you is to rub something in God's face. So, well, what on earth could that be? What on earth? I mean, how could the devil rub something in God's face? Don't forget that the Bible said Adam was God's son made in God's image. If you show my son to be a liar, a cheat, a thief, everything in him bad, it is a reflection on me. And it hurts. I mean, how many of us have had children that didn't do things or been the child that didn't do things that were right? It hurts. It defames the parents. The devil's desire has always been to defame God through God's children. Yeah, I hope it's making sense. Jesus had a response to this accuser, though. You find this in John 8, verses 6 through 8. Y'all can all read that? Yeah, these LCDs are kind of neat, huh? But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. What a strange response. Why did Jesus not quote the law back to him? Yes, Leviticus 20 also says, you're to bring the man. You're guilty yourself. You haven't complied with the law. Where is the man? But he didn't do it. Why, why didn't Jesus run over and cover up this woman and say, oh baby, it's going to be okay? He didn't do any of those things. In fact, he takes almost no action. But in Jesus' response, we have a couple questions and everybody universally wants to know, what's he writing and why? Jeremiah 17.13 tells us something. Think about this in light of John 7. Jesus standing up and announcing himself as the well of salvation. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of water the spring of living water. What did Jesus announce Himself as in John 7, 37? Had they accepted Him? No, they said, your testimony is not valid. And now they have set up a scenario for no other purpose than bringing an accusation against Him. In other words, they don't care that this woman's an adulterer. They sure didn't care that the man was. They didn't even bring Him. They set up this scenario to disprove Him from being who He said He was. That was their reasoning. So he bends down and he begins to write. What do you think he wrote? What does this say he would write? He'd write their names in the dust. We know what he wrote, but why would he do that? Is he just trying to fulfill Scripture? Did Jesus walk around with a mental checklist in his mind? Mm, today's Tuesday. Uh, it's the year... A.D. 30, I better get to fulfilling some of these prophecies. I've only got 700 of them fulfilled. There's another 300 to go. I don't think so. 
Just as the accuser has a pattern of accusation without justice, half-truths, and false motives, God has a pattern in dealing with the enemy. And we see it consistently throughout the Bible. This is kind of slow, huh? It's hard for me to slow down and pace myself with this. <laughs> he just proved that the accuser was guilty of sin and eliminated their basis for accusing him. Do you remember the teaching in, in Matthew 7? Uh, if you go to your brother to point out the speck in his eye and yet you have a plank in your eye, how can you point it out clearly? You hypocrite, first remove what's in your eye, then you can see clearly to, to point out what's in your brother's eye. Basically, what Jesus has just done is they've come and said, she's a whore. We caught her. The law says you have to. Jesus let them talk long enough to find out where their motives were. And where their motives really were was in accusing Jesus. So Jesus listened and He knew the solution right away. They have no right to point out sin in this woman. Number one, it's not their job. Number two, they're not concerned with justice. And number three, they themselves are rejecting the very spring of living water, me. So he bent down and he began to write. And it had results. You saw what happened. They began to walk away one at a time. In John 8, verse 9, it says, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? God's pattern begins with this. We saw that the devil had a pattern. I've been telling you what it is. The very first thing that he does is he brings accusation against you and he could care less about justice. He has a different motive. Secondly, he uses half-truths to do it. Then the third thing is his motive has to do with defaming God. You're just a tool in the process. God has a pattern. The first thing He does with the enemy is He shows him to be guilty of sin. So that while the enemy is always looking for some basis to accuse God, God is continually showing the enemy to be without the authority to do it, without the basis to do it, because He Himself is guilty. God's pattern always has to do with giving the accuser enough latitude to thoroughly expose his motives. Think about how patient God has been with the devil. Think about that for a moment. How patient He's been with us. There was 4,000 years between the garden and the cross. 4,000 years. I challenge anybody in this room to find a Scripture within those 4,000 year period where God condemns the devil in any way, shape, or form. You'll find Him speak out against the snake. You'll find Him speak out against fallen angels. You will find Him speaking directly with Satan, calling Him the accuser, just like He would any of the other angels, moving in and out of heaven. Him and God talking like they were on the same team. What you will never find is a statement anywhere in that 4,000 year period where God accuses or condemns the devil. Why? Why would He do that? Why did Jesus let these people talk to the crowd and embarrass this woman? He gave him enough room to hang himself and expose his motives. See, if those Pharisees had just walked up, quietly whispered to Jesus, what will you do? There was no public display. It was not about accusing him. If it was just about the woman, Jesus might have dealt with her sin. I mean, actually, he does deal with her sin. But that's not what this was about. Guys, sometimes we are self-centered in the way that we think about God's plan. 
We think about God's plan solely as it relates to us, but what does Ephesians tell us? You are being put on display. Why? To display the many-sided, manifold wisdom of God in the heavenlies. The book of Ephesians tells us that. This human drama is being played out the same way that that one was being played out. There's an accuser that has the idea of defaming God and he wants to use you and your sin as a tool to do it. But God has also a pattern. We see it displayed in her life and we've seen it displayed in ours. Openly, publicly dismiss the accuser by showing him to be guilty of sin. We saw that he did it to the Pharisees. He did it to the teachers of the law. But how did he do that to the real accuser? Anybody think of a scripture that has to do with that? How about Colossians? How about having subjected them to a public spectacle? You know, how about all of the scriptures that speak about the devil being put to shame at the cross? And we'll cover some of those. But then think about this. Another part of God's pattern is He shows incredible mercy in the midst of powerfully condemning righteous judgment. At the same time that He's showing someone to be guilty, He's also showing great mercy to someone else that's guilty but doesn't have the same motive. We're going to look at that. In John 8, verses 10 through 11, it says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. In Jesus' words, we see patterns within patterns. You see that laying aside this larger picture of how Jesus deals with Satan or how He deals with an accuser, you see how He deals with you. The first thing that He does is He brings you to a place where you acknowledge sin. You know that you're guilty. Then... He brings you into a knowledge that nobody can bring accusation against you except Him because He's the only one without the plank in His own eye. Then the last thing that He does is command you to leave your life of sin. Think about Scriptures that deal with that. In 1 John 1, 8-9, we see, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you think that this woman who's standing up there, probably half-naked, in front of a conservative Jewish society with the top leading people in Israel accusing her, knew she was guilty of sin? Do you think there was any question in her mind she was guilty? Second step was to know that your accuser has been dismissed. Colossians 1, 21-23 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior... But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the Gospel. Number one, we acknowledge our sin. He's faithful to forgive us. Number two, we know that there's nothing in the world that is condemning us because Jesus is the only one with that authority. When Jesus was declared to be perfect, He showed Himself to be the only one that did not have a big plank in His eye. At the cross, we're going to find out that Jesus showed the devil to have a great big plank in His eye. He has no basis for accusing you. He has not the right. Jesus would be the only one that does. Lastly, you're to leave your life of sin. 
Acts 3, 19 through 20 says it just point blank. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. God's goal in causing us to repent is that times of refreshing would come upon you. His desire was never to talk to you and leave you in your sin. It was never to excuse the accusers, but you stay in your sin. His desire was never for you to continue in your life the same way you were before you met Him. His desire was for you to have a life that was thoroughly and utterly changed. If you met this woman two years after this event, you wouldn't recognize her. She wouldn't recognize herself because her life was changing. If you sit in these chairs week after week, if you hear the Gospel over and over, and you know that the accusers cast down, if you know that Jesus is the only one with the right to accuse you, but you stay in your life of sin, you condemn yourself. We have to move on. You have to move on. 2 Corinthians 5.16-18 through 18 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. In some extent, that's spiritualized. We know that you still look like the same person you've always been, but your behavior should begin to change. And not only should your behavior begin to change, this is something that literally occurs physically. Eventually, your old body will pass away and a new life will come. But you cannot think it will materialize in the natural if you never saw it materialize in the spiritual. This is the meaning of Paul's statements to Timothy. If we lived with Him and died, or if we die in Him, we will live with Him. If we died in Him, we will reign with Him. All of those things, one is contingent upon the other. You won't partake in the resurrection if in your life now, you're not passing from death to life. It's a foregone conclusion that you will if your life reflects that. But there's got to be fruit on the tree. Returning to God's pattern in dealing with the accuser. Don't want to get lost in all of the minutiae here. I want you to get the big picture. He listened to the accusers and allowed them to bring their accusation. He then proved them guilty of sin. He exposed their motive. He dismissed them that He might show kindness to the accused. Doesn't this sound a lot like the Gospel? God watched patiently for over 4,000 years over and over and over, His crown of creation, the apple of His eye, the very jewel of God's creation, the highest in the creation, was defamed in death over and over and over. Mankind did unspeakable things. And this was at the prompting of the enemy. And we saw a snake get judged. We saw angels get judged. We see people get judged for evil actions, but never we're treating symptoms and have never gotten to the root of the problem until one day Jesus says, now the prince of this world stands condemned. If He said, now the prince of this world stands condemned, before that He must not have. God waited patiently to pour out His wrath so that we might find kindness. He dismissed these accusers and waited to do it so that the woman would find mercy. She knew she was utterly guilty of sin. She had just been through an agonizing process of being humiliated. The accuser never intended to benefit her, but what he did benefited her because it was an opportunity for God to look at her and say, Baby, you know you need mercy now, don't you? I've dismissed your accuser. I won't accuse you. All that's required of you is live a new life. This is when James 2.13 says, Mercy will triumph over judgment. 
That's what God's talking about. When that judgment is upon you, she's sitting there thinking, I'm going to be stoned. They're going to kill me. And Jesus uses the opportunity because He knows it's not really about her. He sees the bigger picture. He causes them to know they're guilty of sin. And then He compels her to leave her life of sin. See, this is what this is about. When you got saved, it wasn't just so that you'd be saved. It wasn't just so that you'd go spread the gospel. It wasn't just because God delights in you. All of that is a part of it. But the bigger plan is, the devil wants to use your life as a basis for accusing God. These things that look like you, that are made in your image, don't act like you. You made them and look what failures they are. And God's been willing to put up with it and put up with it and put up with it until He could show the devil Himself guilty of sin and that it was His hand in the human race that was causing this and not God's. And that happened on a cross. Understanding Satan's methods. Satan's pattern has always been just like the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. He has always been in the accusing business, but without being concerned with justice. He has always dealt in half-truths, and his motive has always been to defame God. You and I were merely tools to do it. Some thoughts about this. The devil was never directly proven guilty of any sin before the cross. Never. Not at any time. If you can find it, you come and meet with me afterwards. I want to learn from you. In the book of Job, turn to Job. won't be hard. You can get to the book of Job and we'll look at the very first chapter. If you turn to the book of Psalms, which is in the dead middle of your Bible, you'll make a left and you'll run into Job. Job spelled just like Job. In the Thompson chain, it's on page 564. Look at verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Does it say that Satan was an angel? Okay, I'm not going to teach about the origins of Satan tonight, but it does not say that, does it? It says the angels came and Satan came also. What does your footnote say Satan means there? The accuser. The angels came and you know who came with them? The accuser did. The Lord said to Satan, or the accuser, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Whose idea was it to consider Job? God's. God's. Is there any hint of animosity between Satan and God? They're going to have two distinct conversations over the next two chapters. And they talk to one another like you and I would. Isn't that odd? How can a holy God allow this guy to be in his presence? Explain that to me. No, we have a bunch of theologians here. Anybody speak up who wants to? I can tell you there is only one way. The same reason that in the Old Testament, over and over and over, we see things that are attributed to God that Satan did, like a David census. This is because Satan had not yet been thrown out of God's presence. He had not yet been shown to be guilty of sin. Oh, God knew it was there, and he had conceived a plan. He had conceived an idea. In fact, He did it before the foundations of the earth were laid. That's some deep stuff, isn't it? To expose Satan. See, Jesus knew that He came to the earth 
to save women just like that one who was caught in adultery. But he let that whole thing play itself out so that he would have the opportunity to show the accuser was guilty of sin. For her to know that she needed mercy and for her to ask for mercy and him be able to give it. It was a teaching tool for everyone. Now here's what's amazing. The last 6,000 years of human history has been a teaching tool for the heavenlies. I don't want to sit here tonight and debate about the origins of Satan. You can quote to me Isaiah 14. You can read to me out of Ezekiel, if you like, about a cherub that tried to ascend to the throne of God. I won't debate it. I, I can tell you, if any of those were lock solid, then you would have a monopoly on the market. But they're not. One's a man, king of Tyre. Another's just what it says, a cherub. Never described as an angel, okay? Satan's never described as an angel. His name is not Lucifer. That's something churches have taught that may or may not be true. The Bible doesn't say it. Lucifer's actually a good thing. It's a morning star. Isn't that amazing? It's a title given to Jesus. How about that? So, what on earth is the big mystery? The mystery is that God allowed this to happen for 4,000 years so that He could give Him enough rope to hang Himself. So that people would recognize from accusation after accusation after accusation, that they were thoroughly guilty. He could dismiss their accuser and show great mercy to you. That was the idea. Jesus speaking in the book of John says the following. It's in John 16, verse 8. When He comes, He will... This speaking of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ascension. When He comes, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in Me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see Me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Why didn't He say because the prince of this world was condemned in the garden? Why didn't He say that? Why didn't He say because the prince of this world was condemned in Isaiah's day? Or in Ezekiel's day. Because God had left the sin unpunished the same way He did with mankind before they had a law. Left it unpunished until there was a day where He intended to bring condemnation. And you know what happens? You see incredible sternness of God. You remember this from Romans 11? And incredible kindness all in the same action. And it resounds with the message to the heavenlies. Don't mess with me. I've been thinking about this a lot longer than you have. I'm utterly kind to people who embrace me. And those that scheme and manipulate and behind the scenes have rebellion in their heart. I caught you 4,000 years before this day. Realizing that there's some controversy in the verse, but I can't help it, is what the verse says to me. It says, if the prince of this world, if the powers of this world had known what they were doing, they never would have killed the author of life. They would not have done it. They had no idea of the consequences. When God put on a human suit and He presented Himself... Look at John 14 here. In John 14, we find one of my favorite passages. It's verse 28. You heard me say I'm going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Of course, John 10.29 says He and the Father are one. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer. 
for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what the Father has commanded me. The prince of this world is coming, but he has no hold on me. Do you remember why the Pharisees in John 8, read this in John 8. Y'all are spoiled from the uh, slides, huh? You don't want to turn in your Bibles now. In John 8, listen to what, how this says this. Verse 5. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. The enemy had set a trap. Jesus was fixing to go to the cross. That trap is set. But just like these accusers who had set a trap for Jesus and then unwittingly walked into a trap that He set for them and that they were defamed, Satan set a trap for Jesus. I'm going to kill him with other men. I'm going to defame God by killing this righteous man with other men. But Jesus knew about it ahead of time. He said, the prince of this world's coming for me. But he didn't have a hold on me. The world's going to learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what He said. Jesus was totally aware that the cross was coming. He was totally aware that the devil would use wicked men. He was totally aware that the devil had no idea of the consequences. And he used it as an opportunity to subject him to public humiliation. Second Samuel speaks of the event prophetically as beating him into the dust of the earth, pouring him out like mud for all of the nations to see. The Bible speaks about God laughing at His enemies over this. I didn't intend to prove this to you tonight. This is not a hostile crowd. I'm telling you that this is the pattern that is in the Bible. We'll explore it. I see hints of it in John. I see an awful lot of it in the book of Revelation. You know, the book of Revelation is one of those books that one reads and says this, another reads and says that, and lots of people write books and sell them about it. I do not at all believe that everything in the book of Revelation is futuristic yet to occur. I think that that's a really arrogant view. In fact, I can see that much of it occurred on the cross and much has occurred in church history from then till now. Okay? What I hope you get from this, and we're going to close with the 12th verse in just a minute, so don't put away your Bibles. But what I hope you get from this is that there is a pattern in God dealing with human beings. He first wants you to acknowledge that you are in sin. You know, not everything the accuser said is, not, is untrue about you. It's just been half true. Okay? Then secondly, once you acknowledge that you're in sin, that there is nobody that you account to. Nobody. Not in heaven or on earth other than Him. He's all judgment's been given to Him because He's the only one that sees clearly to judge. Everybody else has been proven guilty of sin themselves. So Bobby can't pacify Matthew. Matthew can't pacify Bobby. That it doesn't work that way. You can't go to a saint. You can't go to another heavenly power because all are guilty except Jesus. He's the one who's been entrusted with judgment. Secondly, when you come to Him, He's ready to forgive you. You just have to leave your life of sin. But anybody that teaches anything other than you must leave your life of sin is a liar. You must leave your life of sin. Otherwise, it's all for naught. It's intellectual play. Secondly, in that pattern in John, you see a much bigger pattern displayed. I'm not suggesting to you that this teaching is conclusive from John. I'm telling you, you can see something at work in it. 
You can see that the same way Jesus dealt with those teachers of the law, He's dealt with our accuser, our enemy. In the same way that they wanted to defame Jesus and use the woman to do it, the devil's looking for a way to use your life to bring shame to God every day. All you have to do is think for a minute. Just think for a minute in the United States about prominent people that you've seen on TV talking about God. What happens to God when they fall? People lose their faith, they're hurt, all those things. And we think it's about the people. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with an enemy that is working against God and trying to point back at God saying, your creation hadn't done so well either, buddy. That's literally what it is. I did all right. Now, there is a time in our teaching when we'll go into pre-Adamite floods and all kinds of things. But the bottom line is you really don't have to go beyond Scripture. You can see these seeds in it. And I don't ask you to accept it verbatim. I'm just telling you to begin to think that way and lots of the book of John will make sense to you. Jesus stands and says that He's overcome the world before He even goes to the cross. How can He do that? How can you say, I have overcome the world before He even went to the cross? Because He set the trap before the world was ever formed. This has been a plan a long time in the making. Now friends, you can't go... There's not a dictionary of evangelical theology somewhere that you can go read this, okay? I didn't receive this from a seminary or from a textbook. I and other brothers that love the Lord just like me have been studying this for some time and I, I challenge you, develop it. Come debate with me about it. Some of it is not provable, but it is so patently obvious to me from the Scripture that this is the way that this works and it makes so much more sense with all of those Old Testament Scriptures like Job. God gave him enough rope to hang himself and he found himself in open warfare with God at the cross. At that point, he was cast down. At that point, he was condemned. Now he knows his time is short. All of those things. Um, we're going to close here and then I desperately want to take questions Any anybody has about this. So let's pray. We'll close the CD and then we'll take questions and I have some other things to say off of the CD.